This episode of My Financial Life is sponsored by Audlem Brown Limited. Audlem Brown Limited is an independent, full-service investment firm providing disciplined investment advice and objective value-based research with a singular focus on clients. From Alumni UBC, this is My Financial Life, a podcast miniseries about personal finance. On this episode, host Mark Ting, partner with Foundation Wealth, speaks to UBC alumnus Ian Robertson, a vice president, director, and portfolio manager at Audlem Brown Limited, about designing your investment portfolio for success. I'm Ian Robertson, and I am a portfolio manager at Audlem Brown Limited. Audlem Brown is uh, an investment firm, a brokerage firm with long roots in Vancouver. We're almost 100 years old hmm. in Vancouver. We're independent. We're employee-owned. And uh, I'll, I'll get to this distinction a bit later, but as, as a brokerage firm, we're one part of the public markets. Uh, um, technically, it would be called, or colloquially, it would be called the sell side of the markets. And then there's another side called the buy side, the sell and the buy. Right. And the buy side is more the fund managers and the um, institutions that put together investment uh, portfolios for people that uh, are kind of then distributed through a channel. We would think of them as mutual funds. So that's the other side. And uh, we'll come back to that. Um, but there are different uh, licensing aspects and different service aspects for people who want to invest as to whether they come to somebody who's on that sell side of the market or the buy side. So l let's start there. So let's pretend um, I've been told I know that Investing is an important part of my future. Let's pretend I'm a, a younger person than I am now, maybe yeah. a recent graduate. And uh, I might have read a book like The Wealthy Barber or listened yeah. to the radio and various mm -hmm. different podcasts. But now I'm ready to take action. Yeah. So you're a professional invest, you're an investment professional. Um, what would be my first step? So your, your first step is, if I could give one piece of advice at the very beginning, which is the, the big picture things, the conceptual things are actually the most important. That Wealthy Barber that you mentioned, and there are some other books like that, gold. It's, um, they lay out the foundations, and if you do the big picture things right, it's, it's a lot like nutrition. It, it, you know, you, if you get the big picture things right, you eat healthy, you exercise, you get enough sleep, um, not too much stress, you know, chances are you'll have a good, healthy life, and investment is no different. So the first thing, um, that you would look at with your investments is the level of risk that you're prepared to take. And if okay. you want no risk, you're just going to be investing in uh, you know, d deposits at the bank or the credit union or, or government bonds maybe, things with no risk. And if you, and if you have a, uh, a higher appetite for risk, then you, you have the capacity to take on more risk through the markets. And, and we'll um, talk about this a bit later, but there are ways to, to be prudent with that risk you take, to try to uh, keep that risk as low as possible, not take um, unneeded risks. So I've heard of a, a rule of thumb, and I like your thoughts on it, where they say you should have 1% bonds for every year of your age. Yeah, it's a great rule of thumb. And uh, for the average person, that's probably a really good rule of thumb. So yeah. let's pretend I'm, I'm Let's see, what, what do people graduate nowadays? We'll say 25. <laughs> yeah. So then and you would suggest a, a 28. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be a bit difficult. But uh, let, so you would recommend sort of a, in terms of a risk, now 
traditionally people assume that bonds are less riskier than stocks. So would you agree with a sort of a portfolio starting point of 25% bonds, 75% equities? It, 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 yeah, that's a very reasonable place to start. And, and then you can modify it from there. So it's not a hard and fast rule. It's just a broad guideline. And uh, you will certainly find people who are 75 mm -hmm. who have all stocks. And uh, because uh, if they have saved enough, if they are Bill Gates, I mean, he probably does have bonds. But if, you, if you're Bill Gates, the market ups and downs are not going to affect your lifestyle, right? I mean, if you have saved more money than you need, then you can afford to take more risk. And if you have the psychology and the experience to do that, then you can. But as a starting point, it's a wonderful guide. Yeah. Put, put your age into bonds. And, and so what's that, what that's telling you is as you go from 25 to 30, you're going to increase your bond exposure and you're going to decrease your risk level um, because two things are happening. You're getting closer to spending it as you get up to right. hypothetically 65. But part of your sort of net worth from a conceptual standpoint comes from your earning power. And if you're going to stop at 65 or whatever that age is, that's a, that's a big part. And you suddenly take on uh, more risk. There's, there's uh, more at stake with what your portfolio is invested in when you no longer have that income. And so it's a natural progression from let's let it grow, uh, but gradually make it more conservative. And, and one of the things that I've learned over my career, I've been doing this for more than 20 years, is that our concept of what a market cycle is is considerably different now than it was, say, in the 90s. Right. You know, we used to use a, a, a regular sort of inventory expansion and contraction as a business cycle, which was three to five years. And so we would tell people, you know, if you have a three to five year time horizon for your investments, then uh, you can probably invest in the stock market, right? That's a kind of reasonable up and down, mm -hmm. as long as you can wait that maybe five years. But we know now, looking back over the past 20 plus years, that there are these longer cycles, these bigger, and they're very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you have to be prepared for more than five years, maybe 10. And I know last century, there were three distinct periods where the market, so very early uh, in the 20th century, so sort of 1905 to 20, something like that, um, through the Great Depression, and then also 1965 about to 1980. Those were three 15-year periods where the market gave zero return over and above inflation. Okay. And, uh, and then we had another period from 2000, March 2000, the peak of the dot-com, um, back to about, depends on which index you look at, but 2016, 2017, when the markets, the different markets started hitting their highs again. Mm -hmm. So they can really go a long time, and people need to be conscious of that. So it's it's both your willingness to take risk, but it's your ability to take risk as well. And as you get closer to that 65 retirement age, your your willingness may go down, but your ability may go down as well. And that's why that adage that you started with about having your um, you, you, your age and fixed income is is actually a good one because you it, it, you run the risk that the markets go down or they stay flat for your retirement, and then your money just doesn't last as long, right. even if mathematically. And that's a big risk. It's a huge risk. It's yeah, all yeah. different types of risks, right? And, and so to time horizons, everybody is not just saving for retirement. People are saving for cars, and they're saving for houses, and there's whatever they're doing, um, at kids' education. And, and so you want to think of those time horizons as well. So if you, you want to buy, you're saving for a house in five years, you're probably imprudent to put much of that into the market, right? You don't want to mm -hmm. save your $100,000 down payment for your $400,000 house and um, and suddenly have the market go down by 50%. And, I, you know, the housing market's not necessarily correlated. It may not go down right. commensurately. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, it's a good starting point. 
but there's so many ways to affect that. It's like so many variables involved. And one, yeah. the one that I run into quite a bit is pension plans. So if someone has a very good, you know, defined benefit pension plan. Well, that's almost zero risk. Yeah, absolutely. They, it's like fixed income. Fixed income. Yeah, so absolutely. those people can afford to take on more equity risk. Yes. And if they don't have that, which is more of the case of this 25-year-old probably going to come see an yeah. uh, investment or financial advisor, then they have to factor on um, not having those safety nets. Yeah. One of the interesting things about pension plans, and I've become more and more of a fan of them, <coughs> in, including our national one, Canada Pension Plan, um, is that they, they socialize some of that longevity risk. For, as an individual, you know, you hypothetically save, you retire at 65, but you don't actually know how long you have to save for, right? You right. don't know if you're going to live to 75 or 105. And so you just have to save almost as if you're going to live to 105. Mm -hmm. And a pension plan socializes that risk. It takes it away because uh, for every person that only makes it to 75, there's somebody else. And, and so it kind of normalizes out. It takes some of that risk off the table. They're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and our pension plan, the CPP, in, in terms of other pension plans out in the world, it's, I would say it's fairly well managed and fairly well yeah. uh, funded. Some of the other pension plans out there are extremely scary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, um, so now we've determined the risk. Yep someone's risk, um, what's what's the next step after that? You're going to think about a couple of other things like like liquidity so, so that, um, you know, let's say you're saving for a car and you think you might need it in the, you know, down payment for it or the, or the total cost for it uh, in a year. You don't want to get a two or a three year locked in vehicle. So you mm -hmm. just want to think about the liquidity aspect. Generally, stocks and bonds and mutual funds and exchange traded funds are fairly liquid you can get in and out. It's more right. the risk you have to think about. And then you also want to think of the, about the taxation. Uh, but really, it's the the risk and the time horizon are the main drivers. And so the next big step that you're going to think about is, okay, so how do I want to do this? Do I want to do this myself? Am I, do, do I really enjoy this? Do I have the knowledge and the skills to do it? Mm -hmm. Because you can go to a discount brokerage, uh, you know, Charles Schwab. I just finished Charles Schwab's autobiography. Wonderful story. Great, mm -hmm. great, great book. Um, and you can go to a discount brokerage and do it yourself, and you'll find a lot of tools there. Um, but it takes some time and it takes some knowledge. And one of the things you want to be aware of is to, to have some awareness of what you don't know. Yeah. And and going back to your introductory comments about the wealthy barber, to know that you you want to get the big picture things right. And it, you know if if you're not quite sure of the difference uh, in investment merits between stock A and stock B. Uh, you know, you should be aware of that and get some guidance and you, you don't want to load up on, or you don't want to be under diversified. You don't want to be too concentrated in a particular sector. Um, so generally you want to go back to all of this financial theory and say, well, I want to be as broadly diversified as is practical. And, um, and uh, I, I want to have my investments in the right place for tax purposes. You want to think about all those kinds of things. And so if you're going to do it yourself, there are lots of tools out there to do it. And then the second option would be uh, to get some advice. And you can get that from generally two channels, two paths. You can go and, and find somebody who will give you advice, an advisor. Uh, in days gone by, they would call them a stockbroker or, or maybe a planner. Um, sort of slightly different backgrounds, slightly different firms, but they're going to give you advice and you're going to say, okay, that sounds reasonable, but you're making the decision, but you're getting advice and you're going to pay for that advice. And then the third way would be to go to a portfolio manager, and that is somebody licensed to manage your investment, not to give you advice. I mean, they'll give you advice as well, but 
but they, they are licensed to manage your investment portfolio for you. So you sort of agree on those overall objectives that mm -hmm. we talked about at the beginning. And they're generally going to do that for a fee. And that could be an individual who works at a brokerage firm who is licensed as a portfolio manager. So they could be licensed in two ways. They could be licensed as a, an advisor, a broker, a planner, um, or they could be licensed as a portfolio manager. And then we talked about these, these buy-side firms, these firms that uh, put together mutual funds, it, um, and you, you can go to them as well, and they will just be portfolio managers. That's sort of mm -hmm. their only licensing. And so they're essentially putting it together for you, and they're saying, here is our Canadian equity fund, here is our, is our American equity fund, here is our Canadian bond fund, our global bond fund, those kinds of things. And, and, and they'll suggest a mix to you, and, and you'll agree, and that will uh, take you forward. But they're going to manage it one way or another, whether, whether it's uh, at a, a brokerage firm or a, a a fund management type of firm, it's going to be a, a sort of all-in service, and they're going to have a higher level of licensing and training. So, but it's up to that individual to figure out his his or her tax planning. Um, That's a good question. So, liquidity issues. You, you know, you'll get, you get some advice on that. It's really a. It, it moves from. Uh, so, so a do it your. So here are the three uh, options. It's the do it yourself. Uh, it's the go and get advice, but you ultimately make the own decisions. And, and the requirement there from a regulatory standpoint, both in Canada and the States, is that it needs to be, the, the, the recommendations need to be suitable. And then the third option is this portfolio management, discretionary management. And so that's more of a fiduciary relationship. The, the, the portfolio manager has to look at, they're required to look out for your best interest. So it's, it's kind of a higher level than just suitable. Mm -hmm. And generally it's done just for a, uh, transparent, uh, agreed-upon fee. Yeah. Well, the, the question I often get asked, and, and one of the, they're like, okay, I want to do this myself. So they, they might read all these reports saying that, you know, there's lots of costs involved and do-it-yourself is so much cheaper. You can do passive investing, which is just buying indexes yeah. versus active investments, which is more stock picking. And uh, they always says, okay, I'm going to try this out. What advice do you would you give me? And they always ask for stock advice. And yeah. the one rule I have is I never ever give a stock advice because what I'm buying today I could be selling tomorrow yeah. and I'm not going to remember to tell everybody to sell it and they'll have a, just a bad experience so I generally throw it back at them I was like what are you thinking about investing in and they'll they'll generally right now it's tech could have been marijuana stocks last year or yeah, whatever it yeah, is sure. right and uh, then they'll like oh I, you know I don't see I can go wrong with buying Amazon Google whatever right top five and I'd be like yeah those are those are amazing companies but you're over-concentrated. And I think the, the over-concentration risk is massive and confirmation bias is massive for yeah. individual investors where they get really confident in one sector just because they're seeking out information that just supports their, their argument and their point of view. And then what they do is they take on all this concentration risk where they put all their eggs in one particular basket, which could do extremely well. Yeah. But it usually doesn't last. I mean, markets, like you said, they go in cycles and then when it goes down, that's, that's a problem. So I always say, you know, diversification is good. If you're a beginning investor, I tend to recommend, you know, buy indexes as opposed to individual stocks and maybe yeah. complement them one or two. Yeah. But don't get overconfident. Don't get cocky when things, when you do well for a couple of years and you're thinking you're, you're beating the market and everything and just always take from those profits and invest in something that's completely uncorrelated to those ones. Yeah, I agree. And and your recommendation or suggestion that uh, index funds are, are a great place to start, they they really are. The theory behind them 
supports that and the practice, the empirical evidence to say, how, how do funds, active managers, compare to indexes and index funds um, in terms of performance, risk-adjusted performance? And the indexes generally win. Now, there are always some funds that can beat the index. And as long as people stick with the plan, though. That's right. right? And, and, and so if that's your starting plan, these indexes, the most broadly diversified global index, plus some measure of, of a, 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 a bank or a credit union depository certificate, a GIC, we'd call them in Canada, a CD in the U.S., um, or a government bond. And, and you can sort of adjust your asset mix based on that, right? How much you, you could go from 99% in the bond to and 1% in the index to, to, to the other way. Mm -hmm. And you can just adjust your risk. And that actually would be entirely consistent with this neoclassical economic or financial theory that has uh, informed our investment industry and led to the creation of these big index providers like BlackRock and uh, they, they have the iShares and like Vanguard who has their own and uh, State Street and uh, there are others that provide all kinds of indexes for people and, and it is a great starting point. Now what it doesn't have is the attraction that people have to companies like Apples and Amazons and the big, the the sort of big ones that people say, oh, I, you know, but I, I just want to have some mm -hmm. of that. And uh, and so you're quite right with that guidance to say, yeah, you need to step back and say, am I, uh, am I really way under diversified? Am I taking more risk? And I, I find J Japan, I was in Japan in 1988, I think it was, okay. um, but it was, or maybe it was 89. Uh, it was at the peak of their they had a dual bubble. They had a stock market bubble and they had a housing bubble, right. a property yeah. bubble. And uh, and it turns out I left right when that was ending. And and Japan has not reached its market peak since then. And not even close. Yeah, it's 30 years. And so the same thing can happen to sectors. It can happen to companies, of course. Um, and so you really want to be as diversified as you can from a practical standpoint. If you're buying individual stocks, I mean, it's impractical to have 5,000, but you should have... Uh, Depends on the studies you read, but at least 20 different stocks. And so it's a fair amount of work. And so if you're going to do it yourself, you really want to think about this. Am I committed to this? Do I really enjoy it? Do I have the time? Do I have the expertise and the knowledge? Am I going to am I am I a good client? It's trying to, like, coach yourself uh, to, to sport success. Right. Mm -hmm. we, we sort of recognize that it, it may be possible, but we're really better off with a coach, with somebody to guide us, to give us some um, insight and, and investing Oftentimes, it's like that as well. So you want to. It's not to say don't do it yourself, but there is a there is a value, and studies show that that there is a value to that advice. And so, take, going from self-directed do-it-yourself to having some guidance, and then further to having somebody do it for you. You just want to think about what the right setup is for you, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and and then go back to those mechanisms for investing and say, okay, do it. Do I want to invest through a global index? Do I want to use some actively managed funds? Do I want to have an a portfolio of individual securities? You know, have my advisor recommend or my portfolio manager choose 20 or 30 or 40 different stocks and have them in my portfolio and a handful of high quality bonds in there to you know, help manage that risk, to have that 25% fixed income if you're 25 years old. So you want to think about all of those things because investing, just like nutrition, is about more than just 
doing what the theory says right. you should do. None of us, none of us eat how even nutritionists probably don't eat how they would say. Right, they're going to stop and have a donut once in a while. Right, you, got, you always got your cheat days. And, and investing is like that too. So you want to go going back to that wealthy barber book. You want to. Um, and I, I read actually, there's one in Australia. I can't remember what it's called, but there was one out, and, and they have a particular Australian flair to it. But it's exactly the same principles, okay. and it's a bestseller down there. Um, uh, anyway, but you want you want to go back and uh, and think about the setup that's going to work uh, best for you. And so today, people think about a lot more than uh, just the brand names. People think about, well, how do we, there are going to be companies that they're attracted to, those sort of iconic ones, but there are also going to be stocks that people uh, sort of shy away from that they think, uh, you know, tobacco is the classic one, right. but that they, don't, that they just don't want in their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they may feel differently if it's in their portfolio directly, like actually looking at a tobacco stock and seeing the dividend come in and right. watch it go up and down, um, versus if it's in an ETF that has 500 or 499 other stocks, uh, you know, to, to make 500, and, and, and a portfolio manager that uh, picks it and monitors it. And so people may react differently depending on the ch- channel they use. And, and then in a more general sense, people are also interested in ensuring that corporations uh, behave as well as they can. Um, that, that sort of, um, well, the, the roots are socially responsible investment. That kind of is more of a screening that mm-hmm. you know, more than 100 years ago with churches screening out, uh, ch- church investment portfolios, screening out stocks that didn't resonate with their values. Um, so alcohol and sin stocks, we would call them. Uh, and uh, more recently, and from a completely different uh, angle, completely different approach. There is uh, so, so that would be socially responsible investment, the the church originated one, and and now responsible investment, and that is quite different. That is taking into account all of these environmental and social and governance factors into the analysis, into the valuation of a company. Uh, so you're naturally going to look at the um, balance sheet and the income statement, and and so. Uh, quantitative things, and you put them in a spreadsheet, and you, you know, uh, model them out forwards, and say how much is this going to earn. But you also look at the quality of the company's management. You look at their strategy. You look at their industry. You look at these kind of um, qualitative factors ar- around, in addition to the financial aspects. And so now we look at these environmental impacts and social impacts of the company. How do they treat their labor force? How, what's their supply chain like? Um, what what happens if a carbon tax comes into its business model? If you're looking at airlines or oil companies, you know what happens. If, does that change consumption? Consumption does it change their business model? And so, and governance is their board diverse? Do they have whistleblower protections? Do they have all these things that we would associate with? Uh, good is this chair and CEO role split, um, which would be best practice. Uh, so we look at these ESG factors and integrate them into the valuation of the company. And by doing that, so it's not a morals-based judgment. It's much different than where the church groups are coming from. It is, um, it is, it is an analytical. It, it's entirely consistent with this sort of neoclassical financial or economic theory to say, well, if we're, if we're not doing this, we're missing important uh, data points on valuing the company. And uh, so you, you almost have to take these ESG factors into account when you're analyzing the company and trying to say whether this is a good company to buy or not a good investment to buy. And, uh, and, and uh, so, so these, the, the, 
the way we choose the stocks and the way we put together our portfolios uh, can, uh, we may want to screen out some stocks, but we may also want to move the dial by including them. And, uh, it, it, and it's hard to reconcile those two things. Our natural reaction is to just screen them out because they bug us. Mm -hmm. But we may actually even move the dial more uh, by including them and then engaging with them and saying, can you change your practices? Can you give me an example of when you've used your shareholder engagement. So that's what you're talking about, yeah, right? So yeah. in, instead of like, say, protesting a company, you're like, okay, let's let's actually be part of the company and try to push their management to make better decisions or yeah. proper decisions in your mind. So can you give an example where you've used this shareholder engagement to try to elicit change from the inside? Yeah, well, let's let's take the oil's the big popular one on campuses. So there's a big divestiture movement, 350.org, Bill McKibben's group. Um, so let's work three, through three different options uh, to, to, to address that. So the first would be, and the natural response uh, is to say, oh, oil drives me crazy. It's, you know, the carbon footprint and the um, global warming. And so I just don't want it in my portfolio. And, and you can take that public and it can be a divestiture movement. If it's in your own portfolio, it's really between you and your advisor. Nobody else really knows right. if you've done that or not. So it's a very anonymous transaction. And of course, you sell it, somebody else buys it. It has to go somewhere. And uh, so one school of thought is that, well, if we get a, if we get enough people or if you, if you just sell it, you're a willing seller, you, you kind of depress the price a little bit. Uh, but what will happen is, in theory, is that some other, in quotes, responsible investment firm. So you're doing it from a social standpoint, a, a morals, a values-based, a behavioral standpoint. And so you say, I want to sell this. Somebody else that is using more of a neoclassical approach says, oh, look, this is temporarily dipped down in price. And they come along and they buy it. And then it's in their portfolio. So it's not to say you have to have oil in your portfolio. If it drives you crazy, you, you can avoid it. It's mm -hmm. fine. Um, but it may not actually do much to the consumption of oil or to the company. Right. I mean, everybody wants to be popular companies. <laughs> the management of companies want to be popular as well. But financially and, and in terms of carbon footprint, it may not actually do much. Right. There are some studies out there that say, well, if you get enough people to do it, there, there may actually be an impact on the company's cost of capital. But I can tell you oil is a very big sector. And, and it's a tall order. I, it's more likely it would happen with a tobacco or a coal that's a very small sector. Right. But oil, And, of course, a lot of the oil production in the world is comes from non-publicly traded companies. Saudi Aramco's partly public now. But, yeah, right. you, you know, there's a lot of oil, and a lot, a lot of it's just state-run, right? So but if we turn off the tops over here, someone will turn else on the gets tops the benefits over, there. over there. Yeah, yeah. So you have to think of it as part of a system. Again, if, they, if these things drive you crazy, you don't have to have them. You can be well-diversified. Um, generally, the bigger th – the bigger – the thing that you want to get rid of in your portfolio, the larger the impact on diversification it will have. But, but there's a lot of flex in the system. I mean, you can have a pretty well-diversified portfolio and avoid some pretty big things. I mean, if you want to avoid American stocks, that's more than half the market, the world market. Right. So that's a bigger thing to give up. Um, and if you want it, to, it, it's kind of working backwards from what you started with. If you concentrate on tech stocks, you're not going to be diversified. And if you're working backwards, screening out all these different things, the more you screen out, eventually you're just back to having nothing but tech stocks or whatever it is. That, right. Or uh, a bunch of niche companies. Or a bunch of niche companies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point. I'll get back to the oil in a sec. But so th that's negative screening we're talking about. And you can have positive screening as well. And and people want that. They want to be part of the solution. They want to invest in the battery producers, the wind farms, the solar panel manufacturers, wh whatever it is. And, uh, and there's space for that. The challenge is that generally those companies are younger. They're startups. 
Um, oddly enough, in the case of wind farms and solar, many of them actually are parts of larger, uh, you know, tr traditional energy well, companies. Energy exactly. Companies. Yeah, yeah. They have the, the money. With the money. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a there's a place for that as well. But you do need to be careful. It's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so that's one way. So you just divest the oil from your company and. Uh, the, the, it's slightly different with the divestiture movements on campus. We talked about 350.org. Um, so, I mean, it's it's bigger. It's getting closer to, to to having some, but it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the overall size of, uh, even if all of the, I, I did the math, even if all the endowments, uh, university endowments divested, it, it's not close. It was, it, when I did the math, it was less than 1%, even if they all divested. Mm -hmm. So, um but the the awareness and the publicity um, uh, and the signaling th those are important things. So I don't I don't want to diminish it. I'm just saying from a mechanical trading standpoint, you you know you sell it, someone else buys it. Uh, so you have to think of that in a systemic approach. So the the second thing would be that you can engage with these companies. So let's say you value the companies and or, or it's an index, so you're just buying them because they're part of the index. And, and now you are an owner of these uh, shares. And so that gives you a difference in, especially if you're larger. Like it doesn't, if you and I each have 100 shares, we don't really get much, much clout to go talk to management. But if you're a larger, if you're a, if you're a pension fund, which would be in the hundreds of billions often, um, well, anywhere from, you know, sort of billion to hundreds of billions, depending on the size of it. Canada Pension Plan would be in the hundreds of billions. Um, or a mutual fund or an index fund, which can be, well, collectively, they're in the trillions. Um, you have a lot of clout when you go and talk to these companies. And, and usually they will do it more quietly behind the scenes and say, you know, we can see the way the world is going. We need you to be part of the solution. And, and we want to have from you some plans about how you're going to be part of this transition to a lower carbon economy. And uh, and and so that engagement takes place quite a bit behind the scenes. There and more and more. It was pension funds that began this in the '90s, uh, mostly in Europe. Yeah, mostly in Europe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so they began this in the '90s. So again, you and I don't really have that clout. But if we go back to the ways that we choose to invest, if we do it ourselves, you don't really have that because you've got your hundred shares in the company. It's it's not going to open many doors. If you're investing through a mutual fund or a fund manager, it's something, if that's important to you that they're helping move the dial, you need to look at their engagement policies and their votes, their proxy votes, because however many shares they have, they'll get that many votes in the um, election. And so you, and you want to ask your portfolio manager the same thing if, if, they're, um, if you're getting individual service from a portfolio manager. How, how do you do this? If, are you helping to move the dial? So uh, a concrete example would be Shell. I, I was at the Global PRI. It's a UN-backed agency, the UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment. And it's been around for 15 years or so now, uh, 14, 15. And, um, and so it's a collection of the largest asset managers. So think of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. Those would be the managers. And owners, those are the pensions, largely, and endowments. And so they all got together and they said, you know, if we want a way that works for us to get the best risk-adjusted return, but we can move the dial, we need to um, foster much more ESG integration so the companies know what's important, how we're valuing them, 
that we're looking at their carbon risk, that we're looking at how they treat employees, that these things are material and that they're important to us. And by asking them, they're, they're going to be more transparent and they're also going to modify their practices to be better. So that's the, that's the analysis side. And then we're going to be active owners and we're going to um, talk to them behind the scenes and we're going to be active in voting our proxies when it comes to it. And some, sometimes they cut them a bit of slack if they're making some progress with the engagement behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, you'll see a proposal and you think, well, why wouldn't they vote for that? But sometimes it's because they're making good progress and they just want to cut them some slack for a year or two while they make some changes. So what I saw at the PRI um, Global Annual Conference was up on stage, uh, the CEO, and his name escapes me, but from Shell, Royal Dutch Shell. And they have been the recipients of behind-the-scenes engagement, but also a big public campaign by owners, by the big owners, mm-hmm. and so substantial shareholders. And the Royal Dutch Shell, like the other oil companies, uh, was very resistant to the shareholders pushing them to say, we, we want some transparency, we want to know what your plan is for a transitioning to a lower-carbon uh, world, uh, because it's material, because we're invested in you, right? We, we have to know what your strategy is rather than that the world changes and you're just kind of left there with right. what we would call stranded assets, oil on the ground that's not going to be uh, burned. And, uh, and so these big public campaigns have gone on for a few years. Uh, Climate Action 100 or Climate Action 100 Plus uh, is the big group that coordinated, organized group that did this publicly. So it's a public campaign. Most engagement with companies is not public. It's behind the scenes. Uh, but this is a big public one. So there's that kind of ties it in with the 350.org and the and the on campus the the divestiture. Um, but but it they do take a different approach. They're saying no, not divestiture. Actually, we we want to own and we want to be as owners engaged in the dialogue. And so on stage at PRI, Shell was in interviewed by the CEO of Shell was interviewed by two of the major pension holders that that held their shares, and they talked about the dialogue they had over a couple of years, back and forth, and how Shell agreed to tie some of its top 100, I believe, executives' performance to meeting specific carbon emission reduction targets. So it's it's not to do with how a- airlines or cars b- burn oil. That's sort of a, a scope two or a scope three, a, a sort of down-the-road type of burning. It's their own production, how they can, um, how they can modify their production um, to, to have a lower carbon footprint in their own, you know, extraction of the resources. And second, and equally important, how they can start shifting into renewables and investing in a, a sort of a, a newer um, and cleaner form of fuels, whether it be wind or solar or other alternative energy. Yeah. could include carbon capture, could, all kinds of things. But the key point is that it's transparent and that, and that it's, target that there are specific targets they have to meet in order to get their executive bonuses top 100 in the company yeah because i imagine a lot of the environmental factors will be solved or aided by innovation right Uh, we're seeing that all the time i mean a a car 20 years ago polluted way more than a car does now and i'm talking about regular combustion engine cars same with the extraction of resources so it, I what I what I find when we talk about ESG, this environmental, sustainable, and governance strategy, is I'll have clients in, and it's it's very top of mind right now. It's very yeah. topical, and I'll show them examples of maybe a fund that is does ESG screening, and I would purposely pick one that does active, like they're doing shareholder activism as yeah. well. So they're going in there and trying to elicit change from it in the inside, 
And people are always surprised about the holdings because I think in their mind, they're thinking yeah. it's a whole bunch of wind farms and solar energy or like water production. And then they find it's regular companies like the Canadian banks, mm -hmm. could be energy companies in there. And uh, the one thing that is often uh, a pretty good debate is uh, nuclear energy. Right. Yes. Some right. people consider that yeah. extremely green because it's carbon neutral and other people think it's terrible. And yeah. these are sort of both on the environmental. And they're, and they're both right. Yeah. So it's always like you're you're coming from a personal point of view yeah. and you're you're imposing your views on this because you do want to invest in what you believe. But finding that perfect product for all these different various Absolutely. things on the spectrum is, is yeah. pretty difficult. And I can tell you, even these, we have lots of, Canada's actually quite good on the global scale with its uh, responsible investment. It's and led in large part by our pension plans, the, the various provincial ones in Canada, um, CPP. Which do follow they, these they, mandates, they, they right? They do the ESG integration and, and that they are actively engaging and they vote their proxies actively. Yes. They're good. I, I yeah. Um, and if you're doing it yourself, you have to. So we, when we go back to the beginning of this conversation, if you're if you're going to a discount broker and you're doing all this stuff yourself, you have to appreciate that the screening out part is actually pretty easy. You know, if you don't want a tobacco company, it's not hard to screen it out. You just don't buy it, right? Um, if you're using it through a fund, it's harder. You got to look through. A, you have to look through all their holdings, and you have to look through their policies because maybe they don't hold it just because they think it's overvalued, and that you know it drops in price, they would buy it. And so you need to look at that. And that, that's one of the areas that uh, takes a little bit extra due diligence to look at their policies and their practices. And that's where an advisor can help you work through that. But you, but it's all available on the web. You can read through it yourself to make sure that re they resonate with you. And ETFs are more and more coming to market. They used to just be broad index, the, the broadest index, right? Mm -hmm. If you want the global index or the S&P 500 or the Canadian index or whatever it was, you, you could get that. But now they're doing low carbon and they're doing a number of different ways to try to uh, have the still re quite diversified um, indexes resonate with people's morals, their values. So, yeah, and then what I also mention is there are products out there, funds out there that do align with people who are looking for not just ESG screening, but they are looking for these are the companies that are doing renewable energy yeah, or something like yeah. that. And what we mentioned before is sometimes that adds a lot of risk because they're sort of newer startups. Mm -hmm. But there are there are things out there. We call them picks and shovels type companies. So it's back in the days, the, the metaphor of a, of a mine, right? People can go out there and dig their hole, try to find their gold, and like 90% of them will go bust. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. kind of true of any new industry. Like there's maybe 10% will survive. But the companies that support those companies who sell the picks and shovels to the miners, yes, it's yeah. a, quite a bit safer than actually investing in those, the actual companies. So we're, we're finding that one way to ease down on that risk is supposed to go in just into these these companies that are sort of the new new wave of environmental companies is actually to... to to invest in the service industry to them, those that service those industries, is quite a bit safer because you're not living and dying by the by one or two. You're 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 servicing the whole. Spectrum. Yeah, that's right. And and I think many would call those um, more thematic funds. So we talked about screening. You can mm -hmm. have negative screening where you're screening out your tobacco company or whatever it is. Uh, you can have positive screening where you're trying to emphasize 
particular companies that are tr trying to make a difference. Um, and, and then you can also have thematic, which is kind of a step back and say, okay, well, who's going to be participating but is already a reasonably established company in, mm -hmm. this, in this sort of shift in the world? And uh, so th those would be three common ways. Uh, and, and you could do that yourself with individual stock picks. There will be funds that offer that. And, uh, and there, there, more and more there will be indices, index funds that offer that as well. Um, and you'll you'll see. I I know on the funds, the active funds, um, that the ones that follow this PR, the principles for responsible investment, this sort of UN-backed agency that says integrate ESG is not a morals-based approach. You just everything's on the table, and you, you just choose the best investments. But they nonetheless they will still screen out some of them, right? They just say it's it's you know conceptually in neoclassical theory, of course you would include tobacco companies in your universe, and they they just exclude. They're almost all of them exclude. Something is just not worth the trouble, right? And and from a diversification standpoint, it's almost irrelevant because they're so small, right? Right. And they just say, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we can we can sort sort of justify engaging with the uh, oil companies and trying to make a difference there and trying to make a lower carbon future, uh, but some of these ones is just not worth our time, and we just exclude them. Or you can even lower carbon in non-traditional ways, like yeah. outside of the box. Like I, one of the big factors is food. Like there's food shortages, and we waste, mostly in North America, a ton of food. Yeah. So there's companies out there that will, they don't concentrate on oil or gas or whatever, but they're actually lowering a massive amount of carbon because they've come up with new technologies that makes shelf life of food last two to three mm -hmm. times. So you, you see a lot of people sort of gravitating to companies like that. So, okay, A, so it's lower carbons and it produces, saves food and it's good for retailers because then they have longer time to sell it. They don't have a lot of waste. So you, I see a lot of people sort of gravitating to that sort of a thing. But again, it's just like anything else. That should be one piece of your portfolio. Yeah, you still right. need a whole bunch of those, uh, the other pieces. I, I always often think of a portfolio like a recipe, and that's a good ingredient. It's an important ingredient, but you need to complement it with a whole bunch of other ingredients. Yeah, and it raises an interesting question about impact. And, and so I do want to bring in the, our own personal actions, right, the, the, that we need to take account of our own actions, our own footprints, how we travel the types of food we eat, all, all kinds of things. Um, and on the investment portfolio side, uh, I spend my day job working in this area in responsible investment. I, I study the area and I, and I volunteer at, with a national organization um, that, that's uh, associated with responsible investment. And, uh, and it will be helpful. It's important that we do this through our investments, but it's not actually going to be the solution. Mm -hmm. the, the solu this will be part of the solution that we need government regulations to change. We need consumers' behavior, consumer behavior to change. Um, and, and we need to do this through ESG integration, through active ownership, through engagement and proxy voting. Um, and that's not to say, again, that you need to have any particular stocks in your portfolio. You, there's still lots of room to have things that that you feel good about in your portfolio. But you always want to go back to those basics and say, but I still need to be diversified and I still need to have the right mix in my investment portfolio between the risky stuff and the safe stuff, right? The bonds and the stocks. Um, so on impact, there is a defined term uh, in the investment world uh, for impact investing. And it's it's a little fuzzy around the outside. There is a group, the Global Impact Investment Network, GIN, G-I-I-N. Believe it or not, there's another group called Tonic, also with two <laughs> eyes. Um, but, but they they define impact investments in a particular way and and one of the area one of the definitional pillars 
that's a little gray. So it's about intentionality, what the what the investment is doing, and is it making a difference, and what your intention is in investing it. But I would also add that it there needs to be additionality. You need to be adding capital. You need to be making something happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so investing in uh, an established solar panel firm, let's say, uh, is you're just trading the shares. They're already out there, right? It's it's part of a, what we would call a secondary market. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're not having an impact, those shares are already there. Right. If you're giving them new capital, whether it's a loan, bonds, or or, um, or they're issuing new stock, that that's adding. That If you didn't do it, their cost of capital otherwise might be a little higher, right? You're helping drive down their cost of capital, making them a little more profitable, a little more likely to succeed. Generally, impact investments are, are smaller, and they're, they truly are trying to make something happen, often in a community that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And there there is... It can be a market-based return, but you're adding capital. But there's this continuum from that market-based return. So think of it like a super small stock, um, but you're at, it wouldn't have, you know, the, the enterprise wouldn't have been viable without your contribution. But often they, they go all the way down to a complete contribution. So there's this continuum between a market-based return and a philanthropic, philanthropic component. And, and so a lot of people choose to do that. That's not a good way to save for retirement. That's, mm-hmm. That is, as you were pointing out earlier, that's really a, a complement, a, a smaller part of your portfolio. But it's important because people will hear the term impact investment and to know what that means. And if, you, if you're you know, buying shares of Walmart because it's making goods cheaper for families or Amazon because they're delivering books for cheaper than you get them in the bookstore as because your intention is that this is a you know good social benefit. But regardless how you think of Walmart or Amazon and those things, uh, your investment is not actually changing their business model, right? You're buying shares in the secondary market. And I think that's the important thing to, re- to remember is that if you, if you want to have an impact, you have to be helping something happen that wouldn't have been happening otherwise. Hmm. So you're you're a portfolio manager. Yes, I'm a portfolio manager. We run probably similar types of money, similar types of clients. Uh, you're very passionate about ESG and social responsible investing. Do you recommend that all your portfolios or most of your clients um, invest in a SRI or ESG mandated investments or portfolio, or yeah. is it something that's really up to them? Well, it. It's it's both actually. So if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, and this this P, PRI I think does a wonderful job at coordinating, giving some legitimacy too. It's nice if you have the UN's backing, um, and and a, and a forum and a legitimacy to, to integrating ESG factors into the investment. But the, but it's integrating them to the effect that they're material to that business. And, and so that really is moving the dial. And if you are a portfolio manager, whether, whether you're the analyst saying which stocks to buy or, or part of a mutual fund system, um, if you're not taking those things into account and the material, you're missing the boat. You're just destined to underperform over time. So from that standpoint, that sort of neoclassical standpoint about efficient markets and trying to uncover hidden values, this is a whole new area that's being looked at. And it's unlike accounting standards that have been evolving for more than 100 years, right? And they're very refined and they're very uh, defined ways that you, you know, you count your inventory, that you have your working capital, that you count revenues at the appropriate times, all that stuff. And everybody looks at them, they have the same definitions and they, they may come to different conclusions, but they're all really looking at a very established source. And with these ESG issues, these are... These are very nascent issues that there's not 
often great definition about how they how they should be considered. The data may not be there. It may be there for one company and another company reports it differently. This is a really rich field for astute portfolio managers and analysts to go and try to add value over and above the financial statements that are, you know, on uh, the regulatory regulators' websites to try to add extra value. And so I think that that the investment analysts and the portfolio managers that are engaged with ESG issues and can add their expertise have a much better chance of outperforming. I mean, first of all, they're taking into account material issues, but but they're also areas that just because they're new and emerging and important, uh, just have so much more capacity for adding value to an actively managed portfolio. Um, you know, the, the funny thing about neoclassical theory is they... It's it's so mathematically robust and beautiful, but it assumes that people are rational and that they're doing everything right all the time. And again, to go back to diet, we know that's not true, mm-hmm. right? and we know that for markets as well. Markets get way overvalued and they get way undervalued. Absolutely, it's, it's just and individual stocks do as well. We always go back to that assumption that they're they're perfectly rational, um, so they're not. But this is one of those areas where you can um, really take some information some dialogue with a company about where it's going and and try to pick portfolios that will outperform. So that's a long answer to your question. Is this something that we recommend to all clients? Yeah, absolutely. All analysts should be doing that, but they're not. They're, they're, this is an evolving field and the P- PRI has uh, it, it's tens of trillions of dollars of assets um, uh, from asset managers and asset owners that are kind of pledged to, that are members of the PRI signatories, and and so, uh, but but they're 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 at different stages of capacity and uh, and and so it's still evolving and there's a lot of um, room there for people to uh, re- really do well by uh, focusing on these areas and the screening part we deal with that every day and. Uh, p- People just don't want a tobacco stock or whatever stock mm-hmm. in their portfolio, and that's fine. They they don't have to have it. Yeah, mostly tobacco. And yeah, those, those are easy ones to screen out. Yeah. I I noticed that people who even if they don't brand themselves as SRI portfolio managers or or uh, asset managers, every time I speak to them, I bring it up myself, and I I ask them as like, what do you think about this? And they say, yeah, well, we do that on a regular basis. Because not so much for the moralistic thing, like that's that's a good, nice, um, not trade-off, off-spin of it, but they're saying it's from a risk matrix. Like we want to invest in companies with good government policies. We want transparencies. Like why wouldn't we? So if they can see all this and the, the companies are more transparent, they're more likely to invest in them as opposed to, you know, a company that's hiding everything. Well, you don't know what you got. And we have, there's lots of issues in like the Chinese stock market where you, the, the accounting issues and what, what you actually see turned out to be not the truth. And uh, we had a couple blow ups there and they don't want to be taken on that risk. So we're, I think it's becoming mostly on the active side, the passive side, not so much because that's the whole point of passive. It's that's right. It's, yeah, they just buy, they, buy they what just, the index tells them. They buy everything and you, yeah. you live and die by the index. But the active side, it's something that I look for anyways. Like we're I, the way we run money, we use passive, we use active, we use all different types of things. But when we when we do engage in, a, in another portfolio manager to run some money, we, we definitely ask them those questions. And we get that from our clients too. 
They they really want that. It's 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 not a new thing, but it's coming really to the forefront. And to me, it just makes sense. It makes sense from a whole bunch of different perspectives that uh, ESG works. And then people think that if you screen out things like tobacco or whatever it is, whatever you want to do, that it's going to have a huge impact on returns. And most of the yeah. studies say is, is negligible. Yeah, there, there's a there's a curve that I draw with with my clients, and it shows the. I'm going to try to describe it on this podcast, but it 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 shows the declining benefits to diversification. And it's a so if you think of a just a y-axis and up and down line, mm-hmm. and the x-axis, the horizontal line, and and so you start up at the near the top of the y-axis, and and the line dr- drops down towards the x-axis, it's going down, and it's curving out along the x-axis, but it's curving because each stock that you add to the portfolio has a diversification benefit, but each one is a smaller benefit. Right. And once you get past that 20 or 30 or 40 stocks in the portfolio, mm-hmm. it's almost imperceptible. Yeah, the benefit, diminishing right? returns. And when, you, when you're screening something out, you're starting at the other end of that curve, right? You're going from, let's say that was the S&P 500, you were showing that benefits of diversification curve. You're, you're starting from the far end on the x-axis and you're going from 500 stocks to 499. It's, I mean, it's inconceivable that you would notice. Mm. I mean, in theory, analysts don't like to, to you know, have their universe of stock picks restricted because uh, it goes against all the stuff they learned in their CFA program or whatever they've done. And um, but, but in practice, every set of analysts and t- teams of portfolio managers they start with all 500 stocks or whatever the universe is, and they they screen it themselves. They they look at the value half of it, or the growth yeah. half, or the momentum stocks, or the whatever it is. And uh, so so they all do it, and and screening a little bit for morals based reasons is fine. It's not going to impact the performance in a in a measurable way. There's um, often substitutions, and they're at subs- Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you don't like one company because they're doing something bad, and and again, it's all up to yeah. the person. Like some people will like Walmart, and some yeah. people will hate Walmart for completely right. different reasons. Yeah, that substitutions is an interesting thing. There was a uh, Morgan Stanley Capital International. We refer to them as MSCI. That they are a big provider of this type of information, but they provide indexes. That was the original global index. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, just by way of background, Capital International is a U.S. based. That they have one or two trillion dollars in assets under management. They're they're a U.S. based uh, active manager, so mm-hmm. they're a fund manager, and they they were one of the early ones to go global. Templeton would have been another. There'd be a few around the world, but, but you know, think back to the '50s and the '60s. And so they did some work with, with the Singapore. Uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, I think it was, but it was it was back in the late 60s, early 70s, and they said, you know, here we are, we're global investors, and we we actually don't have an index to to um, measure our performance against, and so they created one, mm-hmm. and because they're an active fund manager, this sort of index became p- popular, at, but it wasn't really their main job, so they sold it to Morgan Stanley, right? That's the MS. So now you have NCI is Capital International, so now you have MSCI, and that's sort of evolved into its own company now. So they are index providers, but they also do a lot of research on this. So that's the MSCI World Index. It's one of the main world indexes. Um, they did a study, maybe tw- uh, May of 2015, could be May of 2016, where they looked at because their expertise is in indexes. So they mm-hmm. kind of normalized for this. They tested, okay, if we have the global index, or maybe it was the U.S. index, um, and we l- we rate the companies for their ESG ratings, you, you can get that. It costs a bit of money. Mm-hmm. It's thousands of dollars to buy the research. But um, 
if they looked at it and they said, okay, the ones that are rated better, how did they perform compared to the index? Is there a premium for these companies that sort of behave better, this transparency and good mm-hmm. behavior aspect? And they found out, yes, there is, as a matter of fact. And because that's their day job, creating indices, they really compared those ones to a, a very robust uh, comparison. They sort of normalized the indexes, the comparisons for market cap of the companies and the mm-hmm. sector weightings and all that kind of stuff. And they found that there was a, a material, a statistically significant difference and that the better rated ESG companies, the companies rated better on ESG metrics, uh, performed better. But another interesting finding was that even higher performance was from the companies that had a um, um, they called it momentum, but a delta. They were improving. They were going from really lousy ESG scores mm. to medium or from medium to high. Right. But those ones actually. And, and so one strategy would be, well, just get the better performing ones. But another one would be, well, actually, you get the terrible ones as long as they're turning a corner. Right. Uh, you, you, you may outperform. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of areas in this. It's a really rich field for being an active manager, for sure. So ESG is a big part of your portfolio component. Yeah. Um, let's let's start again. So f- right back to someone who's asking you, okay, help me out. You do portfolio construction. I'm worried about trade wars. I'm worrying about coronaviruses. I'm worried about uh, you name it. Every year there's something new out there. How are you going to make me sleep at night if I entrust you with my money? The first thing goes back to how we started this conversation, which is you have to get the risk level right. And that it's hard to know in advance. And it's it's especially hard for people who are just beginning investing because they, they haven't been through these terrible times, that mm-hmm. those 15-year periods where there's no return over and above inflation. Um, so you do that through dialogue, through getting to know your client and talking about it and saying, how much risk can you take? How do you feel about it? How do you sleep at night when markets are turbulent? And uh, so there are all these indicators, and and you hope that you get the right mix, whether that's 25%, if they're 25 years old, 25% bonds and 75% in well-diversified equities. Um, But you have to monitor that, and you have to be in touch. And so the clients, investors, should read their statements. They should be in touch with it. They should not look at their portfolios every day. That's that's, kind of a bad habit. It kind of heightens the risk part. Any part that's in there for long term, and remember we started off saying that Three to five years used to be long term, but mm-hmm. now we, it's a much longer. And if it's a ten year plus horizon, it's it's uh, it's a bit funny to look at it every day, right? To see mm-hmm. if it's gone up or down. Uh, so, so it really comes back to that. And if if you are following a responsible investment, this PRI mandated, ES, it's a lot of acronyms, ESG integration, sort of taking account of environmental and social and governance factors, and 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 engaging with companies to try to get them to modify their behavior. And mo- and when they modify their behavior. There is one or two goals. It's to lower their risk or it's to improve their performance. And so you can actually get a better performance. So if you're if if investors are in responsible investments in quotes, the, following this, these ESG practices, they will have slight they should have slightly less risk and slightly better returns. But the differences are subtle. And I mean, the market if the markets go down 50 percent and you go down 49 or 48, you know that's outperformance, uh, but you're you know, still down in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So the most important thing is to get the mix right, to make sure the time horizon is appropriate, that you're taking liquidity and things into account, and and that you're educating, you're having a good dialogue along the way, and you're making modifications as as things come up. Where somebody says, you know, I'm 25, I'm not going to buy a place 
uh, I don't need this till I'm 65. And then two years later, they say, well, actually, I'm getting married. I'm going to have kids. And you, you, I mean, you need to modify the investments, probably the, the objectives. So the actual portfolio construction, though, um, there's, there's a correction in the market. Uh, do you have, I, like I mentioned, I kind of say it's like ingredients, baking the yeah. cake or whatever, right? Is there, do you have certain ingredients that do well when markets go down? Like what, what yeah. kind of buffers and <laughs> that sort of a thing? That's, that's what I hear a lot of people asking for. They don't want to live and die by stock markets. They, no. they want to have some kind of contingency plan and know that there's a plan in place yeah. for the bad times. Well, in theory, yeah. So, so I would go back to that bond portion mm -hmm. that in our example, the 25% is the safe part. And it's unfortunately, it's chugging along at 2% these days rather than the 4% that would be historically more normal. Um, but that is the safe part. And, and I would say that just because it's fixed income, so we would think of GICs and bonds normally, to treasury bills, um, is the safe part. But there's a tendency because the yields are so lousy these days all around the world, uh, you know, we, we were used to um, the four, four and a bit percent, and now we're down at two. And so people say, well, is there some other fixed income that actually offers a higher return? And you can go into higher yielding bonds, and they'll start to pay you three and four. But every time you go up, you're taking more risk, and you're getting closer to, you know, eventually winning into the super high yield bonds. You're, right. you're, you're really closer to stocks than you mm -hmm. are to the safe part. So, so for the... Uh, to answer the question you asked about, are there ways that we can tailor a portfolio and maybe considering ESG factors to try to minimize the volatility, there is a, an endowment manager named David Swenson. He's ran the Yale Endowment. Mm -hmm. I, I think he's retired now, but I'm not positive, but he's been there a long time. And so he, he, his book actually is called Pioneering Portfolio Management. And he, he said, well, look, the traditional endowment model is to have 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, and you call it a day. And that 40% in bonds kind of smoothed out the, mm -hmm. the edges, the ups and downs, and still gave, in his case, Yale, you know, reasonably consistent spending through these cycles to, to fund their research and whatever else they did with their money. And he said, but you know what? If we, we actually, because the bond part is the safest and it's the... Uh, but it's also the lowest return. If we can replace most of that with other things, not the stock market, but we can add hedge funds, we can add real estate like shopping centers, we can add forest land, we mm -hmm. can add commodities. We added all these different things that are kind of equity-like classes, but they're not strongly correlated with the stock market. So when the stock market goes down, the forest land might still be doing well or the real right. estate. And it worked like a charm. And he had a second edition of his book and he became a star in other endowments. Uh, started following him. The first thing I would say is that you sort of need to have Yale's assets to do mm -hmm. that. And so you and I don't have that. And so we can't really buy forest land. So we're kind of stuck with what's publicly traded. Um, but but if you're big, they, they could do it. And it all worked like a charm until 2008, when actually everything did become correlated, except for the treasuries, right? The That safe stuff that we talked about with our hypothetical 25-year-old client. And, and so there really is uh, a value to that safe stuff. And we're allowed, that's the only thing we're allowed to say is guaranteed is these sort of government-backed securities. Maybe it's because government writes the rules, but they just mm -hmm. say, you know, we're, we're risk-free. You can buy a government bond. You can tell people it's risk-free. And generally that's true with the governments we deal with. But of course, it's, it's not true everywhere with every government. There are lots mm -hmm. of risky governments. Uh, but we generally, the risk-free asset in global investing is considered to be the U.S. Treasury. Canada is really good. 
um, so, so we can consider ours the, the same. But it, it, uh, I think so to manage the risk, the most practical way for people is to have the right mix between the stocks and the bonds. There are other non-correlated assets. So, you, so gold, you could add gold to a portfolio. It's traditionally a very non-correlated asset. It's a lousy long-term return. Warren Buffett will tell you that every AGM mm-hmm. he has, someone always asks and he's, he says that. But it, it really is a non, has traditionally been a non-correlated asset to the market. But, but uh, you know, you, you, it would be a small complement right. to the market, but there, but there are other vehicles, and having a pension plan as we start off is uh, a wonderful way to sort of add some certainty to your investment portfolio. But that's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Not many of them these days. Yeah, experience play has a takes a toll, and there's definitely a lot to say for it because right now there's a there's a huge upswing in passive investments so robo advisors yeah. just index investing and um and it's it's interesting to watch but the one thing that it really hasn't had is a big drop because a lot of this wave has sort of yeah, happened right. after 2008 2009 and that's where the behavioral piece comes in yeah. because if you're if you're a do-it-yourselfer and you've never experienced like a really bad bear market like I'm talking not just 10% return uh, reduction I'm talking yeah. like 20 30 40 you don't know how you're going to react you, no, you may right. think you know how you're going to react yeah. and you'll say you you'll react this way when it comes you'll say oh I'll just I'll buy I'll buy all of these things at a discount and but in reality it doesn't really work that way people often panic so it's I'm going to be very interested to see what how it plays off with a lot of the passive investments as soon as we get a big trade-off, because that's where I think a lot of the, on the active side, we see a lot of active people sort of taking advantage of the, the heightened volatility and the heightened behavior where they will see something that they think is, we call it, you know, was it the baby's being thrown out with the bath water. So if we were going to use today's environment. It hasn't happened yet, but let's say the coronavirus causes a big market, overall market sell-off. Well, it makes sense that certain industries go go down because mm-hmm. it's going to definitely affect their their revenues in the future. So airline industries and, uh, you know, Starbucks, people who operate a lot in, in China, but a whole bunch of other companies are going to be going down just because people are just selling their indexes or selling whatever because they feel that this could uh, this could spread and cause more panic. Whereas some of the other people say, oh, well, that traded off because they were not even guilty by association. They were just happened to be in the same index. And now it's quite a bit cheaper and they'll, they'll buy it. So uh, that's why we tend to use a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we, we think if... There's a lot of places where we think that the indexes are extremely efficient and a manager really can add value. And if that's the case, we'd rather just buy the index because it's cheaper. But there's other places where we, we think managers do add values, mostly in small caps or sort of niche markets like maybe these, uh, not, the social, not the social responsible investing ones, but the ones where they're, they're actually looking for those industries that are supporting the in the environmental companies of the future, that sort of thing. Yeah, generally, where the greater the informational inefficiency, the less efficient the information is, the, the more opportunity there is. Mm-hmm. And and people know that uh, intuitively when they think of real estate, right? That it's a very localized market. There's local expertise, and it can really add value when you're looking for a home to live in or an investment property. And and publicly traded markets, stock markets are like that as well. So the more that people are looking at it and the more more it's traded and the more efficient that information exchange is, the, the less 
likely you are to be able to outperform the market. It's, it's generally reasonably priced. But to, to go back to your comment about how people feel in a down market, there really is a value to advice. It's a bit like having a coach. They're, they're, and sometimes you don't recognize that value until <laughs> until you really need that. It'll all be hindsight, advice. right? Yeah. And, and, there, and we have to recognize, and I recognize this, you know, with my own uh, RSPs and savings, uh, uh, is that we, we all have these inherent biases and foibles and, and behavioral quirks, and, and we just need to recognize them, and uh, we'll never stamp them all out, right, mm-hmm. we're, we're people. Uh, but you, you try to go back to that neoclassical theory and say, yeah, so I want to get the right mix between stocks and bonds, and I want to be as diversified as I can, but look, there's scope in here to, uh, you know, take a little risk with a, 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 a new company, a junior company that you know, is making windmills or batteries or whatever it is, if it's a little risk on the side and, and there's lots of scope in there to screen out some stocks that I don't want. As long as I'm following the big picture things right, that wealthy barber approach, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, and with, with investments, I mean, your gut tells you everything. But the trick is you basically have to do the opposite of what it says. Usually you say, trust your gut. Yeah. But with investing, anytime your gut is saying, oh, I got to get on that, that's FOMO, right? Yeah. That's fear of missing out. That's greed kicking in, and you're probably going to be buying high. Yeah, and then right. any other time that's where what you're. It causes like, the markets to go too high and too low. Yes, people exactly. piling in and people piling out. At the, yeah, they do it at the wrong times. And this is what Warren Buffett would say, right? Yeah. And then the, the, the flip side, when your gut is saying, I got to run from this investment, I got to really leave it. As long as it's a properly diversified investment. If it's like some super high flyer, that's different. But if you got a plan in place and your gut is telling you, oh, I got to get out of here, that's typically when you want to be buying, right? Because then you're selling at a low. So it's it's interesting to see that because we see the stats every single time. It's the thing, the one thing that's predictable about investing is how people react to it. And they typically right. buy at the wrong time. They sell at the wrong time. And the stats back it up. I think, yeah. I don't know what the stats are, but the S&P for the last 15, 20 years is probably, if you just held it, did nothing on it, passive investment, uh, I think you got like 12 to 14%. But during that time, the average investor who invested in it, they, they got around 4%. Yeah, and that right. that spread is purely behavioral, it's behavioral. and right. it's, it's on the investors to, who are making those decisions. So that's where I think, one of the big benefits, one of the the really big benefits of working with an advisor is they can explain things as things are yeah. going down and that's, you know, maybe that panic subsides and you stick with the plan. You might have to make modifications because yeah. maybe your risk tolerance is going back and forth, but it's rarely a good idea to go from one extreme to the uh, other. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And there are lots of good advisors out there and there are lots of ways to do it yourself. And And in both cases, I think it's very prudent to have a long-term plan. If you're going to do it yourself, you need to sit down and say, okay, what are my goals? How much am I going to save per year? How am I going to invest it? And stick to that. And not to, when markets are going up, say, well, actually, I'm going to shift from 75% equities to 100 while the market goes up. And then you feel the opposite when the market's going down. You say, oh, actually, I'm going to do 50% equities now. And uh, it's to stick with that plan. And that's mm-hmm. that's what an advisor or a portfolio manager will do for you as well, is to help you work out a plan and to help you stick to it. But, I mean, if, with a lot of self-discipline, Again, just like a diet, easier said than done. But but there are lots of people who can do it, and it's wonderful that we have those channels because before uh, Wimbo Schwab, it was the early '80s, I think, that he started. But it, you know, there were there were wholesale changes in the way that the stock markets worked, including going from physical share certificates that used to get mailed to you, mm-hmm. right? and then the dividend check came in, the, in an envelope every quarter, and your annual report came in the mail every quarter or once a year. Um, but but as we've added these different different uh, avenues that people can invest and then different 
uh, methods through mutual funds because they were not around before much before the 70s. They sort of become popular. Uh, there were some investment trusts before, even during the Great Depression and, and earlier. But as a popular vehicle that they've so so people have so much more choice. And the key thing, and one of the reasons that these exchange traded funds that you and I started off this conversation with are are so good and a great starting point, especially for do-it-yourself investors, is because they, they keep those fees really low. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting any advice. Um, but, you know, if you just buy the global index and a government bond and vary the proportion of those over time, in theory, that's a terrific way to go. It's just hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, having nothing but vegetables and, uh, you know, a little bit of protein somehow for your diet every day, all day. It's right. It's it's easier said than done, even if it does make you healthier. Mm. Yeah. Um, anything else I should have asked you that you'd like to talk about? No, I think, Mark, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, if I could just recap how I would say to investors wanting to build their own portfolio for success is that you, you need to pay attention to the theory behind it, to, to be diversified, to have the right of, <laughs> mix of risk for you mm-hmm. at your stage. And it's a very individual thing. It's not something that someone can tell you you should do this. I was going to say, how do they find sort of, out their risk? Yeah, well, they need to think about, okay, if I'm putting $10,000 in and I put it all into the markets and, and the markets go down by 50%, which is what happened in 08. It's what happened in 2000. Um, so it happens. And mm-hmm. there's even more than that in the, during the great crash in 29. Um, you need to think, okay, so I put 10000 in. How am I going to feel if it goes down to $5,000? Am I going to look at this as, well, I'm still saving another 10000 you know, the next year, and I'm just going to be buying it cheaper? Some people frame things that way, right? Um, and uh, so, so you just need to think ahead, but you really can't know and, until you've been through it. But you, you, you should have some idea of your sort of appetite for risk and how important it is to you. And if, if your plan is that this, you know, I don't need this till 65 you know, maybe you can sort of rationalize it. You work through it. You save uh, next year. You buy it cheaper. So you, you need to think about um, that, that the risk, um, and then you need to think about the behavioral aspects. Uh, you know, how am I going to feel? How am I going to react? And then how how do I feel about the different investments in my portfolio? Am I quite happy following the sort of classic investment theory and just having ESG integration and uh, responsible investment to trying to outperform the market or follow an index? Or do I really want to tilt things and some things drive me crazy and other things I want a little more of? But always going back to that. But, but if I deviate from that hypothetical optimum, uh, you know, I could deviate a little bit and there's probably no impact on risk and return. But the more I deviate, the greater the impact will be on my risk-adjusted returns, how, how I perform over time. And, and that actually, I should point out, I mean, it could mean better performance, but it could mean worse performance. And that's that's the risk. The one thing I also like to point out when we go through these discussions is if we talk about a 50% retracement, that's from the peak to the trough. Yep. So on the very top of the market to the very bottom of the market. Yep. And you and I know how impossible it is. I'll use the word impossible is to market time. Oh, absolutely. So it... The chances of you investing at the peak to the bottom is pretty rare. It's pretty rare, yeah. And then, and then you don't. But what's more importantly, I think, is we. It's good to show this is the range. This is a good range. But this is also the recovery. And the recovery could be a year, could be two years. Yeah. And in the long scheme of things, if you don't panic, even if you did nothing, and you just 
let it continue going on. You would recover in two years, which isn't great. I mean, that's two years yeah. opportunity cost that is gone. But knowing that the markets typically go up, we'll say out of every five years, maybe four years, I mean, you're, you're going to hit that speed bump once every oh, couple of years. Yes, and you, you just got to ride it out. And in, as long as you got a pretty good diversified portfolio, that's what they're made to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah well said. My Financial Life is a production of Alumni UBC. Thank you to our host, Mark Ting, partner with Foundation Wealth, and our guest, Ian Robertson, a Vice President, Director, and Portfolio Manager at Audlem Brown Limited for participating in this episode. We would also like to thank Audlem Brown Limited for sponsoring this episode.